Well, good morning. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. God is good and he is good to us all the time. We are so grateful to be in God's house today. And we are today studying uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. As we continue our study through this letter of Paul's that uh, we're calling the gospel of God. And I want to begin this morning by just simply reading our text for the day. And so if you will open God's word, uh, follow along on the screen. If you don't have a copy of God's word with you, this is what the apostle Paul writes to God's people. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word and all God's people say, amen. amen. Well, if you've been here the last two weeks, you'll remember that we have been seeing how Paul is telling us about life in the spirit. And I, I've been telling you that Romans 8 uh, is all about showing us that to be in Christ or to be united with Christ means that we have the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is in us and we are in the spirit. And, and we've been seeing throughout this first part of Romans 8 how the spirit uh, sets us free from sin and condemnation, how the Spirit indwells us, how the Spirit gives us life and peace. And maybe remember last week, we saw that one of the Spirit's most important roles in our lives is to show us two important things. To show us first that we are God's children, that we are loved by the Father. And then second, that we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, and we have an inheritance Coming And these realities, we talked about this last week, are just unbelievable privileges that we should thank God for every day because they really do speak to the deepest needs of our hearts. And these realities ought to cause us to give thanks to God and give prayers to God. And I, I think every day you should be saying uh, what I'm going to show you right here now. Uh, I am God's child loved by my father. That's something you should express all the time. And it should change your life. You should be expressing, I am an heir of God and my inheritance is coming. And these things are so important because we all live with these deep longings for approval and significance and security. And the Spirit is telling us that it is only in knowing God is our Father and knowing that God has made us his heirs that we will see those deep needs 
met. These things are so practical. They're not just these beautiful doctrinal truths. They speak to our hearts and our lives where we live every day. Are you seeing this? I hope, I hope you're getting this. But then at the end last week, Paul also told us something. And we saw it at the end of verse 17. We touched on it briefly. He, he said that we are fellow heirs with Christ. And then that word provided, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And Paul says, there's glory ahead, but there's also suffering. And Paul probably knew that that would raise some questions. And so in our text today, it's kind of like maybe he hits the pause button and says, let's talk. You are God's children. You are fellow heirs with Christ and glory is coming, but so is suffering. And I wanna show you, Paul says, how our future glory with Jesus transforms our present realities, especially our suffering. He says, I wanna show you uh, how as a child of God, suffering is not the end of the story for us, but it is actually a pathway that is leading us somewhere. So that's his big idea today, that the splendor, and the majesty and the beauty and the brilliance of this future glory with Jesus, that glory reframes today. It reframes our present suffering. And so as this future glory captures our hearts, it, it leads us to hope that we can have hope now even in suffering. And that's his big idea today. Maybe you've noticed at times how the Bible talks a lot about the future. I don't know if you've ever asked why would God talk, talk so much about what the future holds for us. And I wonder if the biggest reason is God wants to remove our fear of the future. I mean, just think about it. Fear of the future leads to all kinds of anxiety and despair. Many of us struggle with this like every day. When fear of the future invades our hearts in the present, it steals our joy. It kidnaps our faith and our love. And if we let it, that fear can distance us from God, right? We can begin to grow more in love with this present world because we're afraid of the future. Because we, we kind of really ultimately think that, that uh, what we have today is all that there really is. But the opposite is also true, as Paul shows us today, that when our vision of God's future for God's children is clear, then that helps fear to evaporate. That helps hope to prevail. That hope-filled future with God can, can go on to overflow our lives with love and with joy and with risk, with faith. In other words, and if you want to write it down, you can do this future Glory leads to different lives now. Future glory leads to different lives now. When we are captivated by future glory, we do not buy into the myths that the one with the most toys or the best physique or the most Instagram followers win. We're not overly shaken by social unrest or political turmoil because this story that we're in is still being written and we know how it ends and we know who wins. We do not, when we see future glory, devote our best energies to laying up treasures on earth because we know they're just going to rust. 
they're just going to rot. And oh, by the way, you cannot take them with you. And so we don't put our final hope in temporary earthly things and achievements and experiences and in relationships because they don't last. They're only temporary as good as they, they may be in certain ways. So why? How do we put our hope in suffering? See, all this happens. What I want you to see Paul's going to tell us is, is we can have hope in suffering as we learn to rethink our suffering and rethink glory. And I'm going to show you three ways that Paul tells us about this. If you're writing things down, of course, you can go to the app where you can do this, or you can write it down, obviously, on a piece of paper. You need to first rethink how we see our present sufferings. So that's kind of the first question that, that Paul's asking for. So how do you look at, how do you see, how do you think about your present sufferings? And, and really, I would say verse 18 is Paul's central thesis, big idea in this passage. Let me read it again. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Maybe you remember, we've seen this word consider uh, before, back in Romans 6, verse 11, where Paul told us to consider ourselves dead to sin. I told you this is an accountant's word. That word kind of means do the math. And back there, the idea, Paul said, is to see what the Bible says. Look at the world around you and do the math. You consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. Well, right here, chapter 8, it means this. You look at the value of what is coming in the glory of God. And then you look at the sufferings of this world and you do the math. You, you see it for what it is. And it changes the way you think. We rethink our sufferings. Or maybe you could put it another way. When you look at your sufferings, you should not lead with your feelings. You should not lead with your feelings. Do I need to say that a third time? <laughs> we should not lead with our feelings. This quick survey right here, I didn't plan this ahead of time, but the Holy Spirit, I think, is prompting me to do this. Who tends to lead with their feelings first when they're hurting and in pain? Would you raise your hand right now? All the honest people in the room, let me see. Yeah, this is how we do it. It's kind of instinctive for us, right? But Paul says, no, that's not how you do it. We don't lead with our feelings. And again, you know, maybe you remember beginning of, you know, or, or not too long ago, I did a series on emotions. We don't think feelings are bad, but, but feelings cannot be the loudest voice in your life. Feelings cannot be the leading influence in your life, especially when it comes to suffering. We cannot feel and then believe and then live out of that. We must think God's truth, must do the math, and we must believe. And out of that, our feelings should flow and we live out of that truth. See, we have to rethink our present sufferings. So what is Paul talking about when he says sufferings? Well, He's just talking about what you would think any of the trials that we face in life, whether they're personal, like in our families or our work or our health or 
you know, whether they're social, kind of the micro and the macro level here, whether it's economic downturn or racial injustice or violence or political corruption, I mean, whether it's divorce or disease or death, I mean, any way we suffer, large or small, Paul is talking about that here. And he says, you take that suffering and you think about it in light of the glory. So the glory that is to be revealed to us That's simply God's ultimate restoration of all creation in the new heavens and the new earth where the God of glory fully and finally rules forever. One day, glory's coming. And that reality of God's final full reign is often referred to simply as glory because it's glorious, indescribably and incomparably glorious. God is often called a God of glory. And and glory is what theologians call a summary attribute of God because it's not like one thing that stands by itself. It's It's something that draws together God's beauty and majesty and splendor and worth and radiance all in one category. God is glory. And where God is, glory is. Where glory is, God is. We see this all through the Bible. 1 Peter 5, 1 says, In Jesus we are partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed. Verse 10, a few verses on, says God has called Jesus' people to his eternal glory in Christ. If you turn back to Colossians, Colossians 1.27 says that our union with Christ, Christ in you, that is the hope of glory. Colossians 3.4 says that when Jesus appears, we also will appear with him in glory. Now, Paul is not really describing in specifics what this glory will be. His point is simply this. Listen, a future is coming that will make our present suffering seem small. So great is that glory. I also want you to note, Paul's not talking to everyone here. Notice he says, maybe you want to underline, circle this phrase, this glory will be revealed to us, which means God's children. And if You look to the next verse, that phrase, sons of God, in verse 19, makes that clear. Paul is saying that one day this incomparable glory will be revealed to God's children. Listen, it's guaranteed. We will see it, we will share in it, and we will all be changed by it. And what Paul is doing here is simply this. Paul is giving us perspective. He's giving us perspective. He's saying whatever pain or suffering or disappointment that we might be facing in whatever size or shape it's coming at us, it is nothing. And it will seem like nothing on that day when the glory that the child of God in the age to come will experience. And this is a stunning statement. Paul says that the contrast between present sufferings and future glory is so great. He says you can't even compare them because they're so vastly different. He's saying that future glory will make even the most tragic of suffering here seem small and inconsequential, like annoying inconveniences, like, you know, when you step on a wet spot in the carpet in your socks, right? 
Or like you get stuck in a traffic jam on this side of the Altima on your way home and you thought you were going to make it, but now you're going to be 10 minutes late for dinner. Or, or maybe it's like getting locked out of an account on a website because you entered the wrong password too many times. See, even our greatest sufferings will seem trivial compared with the glory to come. And actually, you may notice Paul's saying more than that. He says they're not even worth comparing. Now, don't misunderstand Paul. Paul is not denying our sufferings. He's not saying our present sufferings are not painful or horribly tragic. They often are. Paul is not minimizing our sufferings. What he's saying is future glory will swallow them up. What he's saying is this, I am maximizing the reality of your future glory in Christ. Now think about this. When we think about how excruciatingly painful and tragic and horrible life sometimes can be, how unbelievably great must this glory be to make this broken world's pain seem so small? That's Paul's point. And also, this is a promise from God, and God never lies. Amen? Amen. See, now, it's possible, likely, I'm sure that some of us are thinking right now, well, I hope this is true. But it's sure hard to see. And if you're thinking that, maybe wondering that, you need to remember where Paul is speaking from. He is not speaking from some ivory tower. Paul is not writing this on an influencer trip to Cabo. Paul, actually, if you know his story, it's all through the New Testament, experienced more suffering probably than any of us will ever experience. Now, you can look at a number of places. I'll give you a couple just to think about. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 27, he says, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once... I was stoned, and that's not like that, it's with rocks. And I kind of need to say that because we live in California. (laughs) He says, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. Anybody had, you know, all of that? Are you, anybody still running the race with Paul in the competition of suffering here? I think we're all done, right? But he keeps going. Verse 26, unfrequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepful night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And Paul doesn't even include here how trusting Jesus wrecked his career path destroyed his resume. Paul was a wealthy man. Paul was a respected man. And following Jesus sent him on a different path, a path to prison, a path of deprivation. In Acts 14, verse 22, not too long after Paul was stoned almost to death for preaching the gospel, he says this, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And he probably spoke those words with a face still swollen and discolored from those rocks. See, Paul writes what he writes 
knowing what it is to suffer crushing pain and heartache. Here's another passage that really is kind of a parallel to Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Anybody about to lose heart? Maybe this word is for you. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, that eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, that's the glory that is to be revealed. Paul's talking about in verse 18. And he's simply saying that the incomparable, weighty hope of future glory puts our present suffering into its proper context. Do not miss what what Paul is saying in in 2 Corinthians 4, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the imprisonments, the abandonment. I mean, he calls all of those things, think about it, that was his life. He calls those things light momentary affliction. And there's only one way he could do that. And that is if he believed what he is writing here in Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present time. I'm sorry, I'm thinking about some of the things that I know some of you are going through. And I see you out there. But Paul says, and this is God's truth, and this is God's word, word that these things are not worth comparing because the glory that is to come is so much greater. And there are still tears. Paul is not denying that. As we read, Paul said there's sleeplessness, there's hunger and thirst, there's deprivation. He still has questions, there's still disappointments. We're not robots. And I think this is where a lot of us misunderstand because of the weight of glory that is coming. Our suffering, Paul is telling us, becomes something different. It becomes suffering flavored with joy, defiant joy, with hope, defiant hope. And there's two reasons really why summing this up, two framing realities in Paul's theology of suffering. First, he he believes earthly suffering is temporary. They are of this present time. That means that for the child of God, the suffering we face always has an expiration date. It's like that jug of milk in your fridge, right? You know, it's going to expire. And Paul is just saying, this trial you're going through, it's always temporary. Reality number two, earthly suffering is small compared to the glory to come. And so no matter how big the suffering, no matter how painful, no matter how real, no matter how tragic, Paul is telling us this is reality, friends. In the light of God's eternal glory, our sufferings are small and tiny and microscopic compared to the glory that is to come, not even worth comparing. And when you believe that, it gives you hope. It's as if Jesus is saying to you today, listen, yes, the pain is real. 
but I am not finished. I am on my throne. I am working my glorious plan. I am rescuing my people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Together we will one day reign forever. And this new order, that final reality, listen to me, child, is beyond anything you can comprehend. So wait for it. It's coming. Jesus says, I promise. So what really I think Paul is asking you and me is do we have a conception of future glory? Do we understand and believe that what is coming for us as God's children is going to make all of our present suffering small by comparison? That is what Paul is trying to get you to see. What Paul is doing here really is he, he's trying to recalibrate the hope of your heart. And if your conception of future glory doesn't make uh, your present problems seem small by comparison, if you are going to choose not to uh, believe what Paul is saying, then you should give this more thought because the word of God is true. Future glory is coming. But Paul knows we have questions. There's still questions, lots of questions. And, and what he seems to kind of do in the rest of these verses is sort of like a Q&A where he's anticipating questions we'll ask and answering them. And maybe we would ask, well, what is this glory to be revealed? And Paul actually answers that question in, in verses 19 through 22. And, and in doing this, what he does is he gives us a second way to rethink our suffering, a second way to have hope. And he says we have to rethink how we see God's created universe. Now, that might not have been where you would thought Paul would go, but he, he, he's going to tell us several things that are surprising. And the first one is in verse 19. He says, have you read this and wondered what he's talking about? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And almost every word here deserves careful attention. Creation, what does this mean? Well, He's talking about the whole universe, everything that God has made, physical creation, the trees and seas and plants and animal life and mountains and valleys and stars and galaxies. And Paul is personifying creation here. And he says, what is creation doing? He says, creation is waiting. And it's not just waiting. It's a particular kind of waiting. What, what kind of waiting is creation doing? Paul says creation waits with eager longing. It's one word in Greek. This is waiting marked by eager longing. There's different kinds of waiting, right? This isn't the impatient, angry waiting that happens at the DMV, right? <laughs> this isn't the bored waiting of the checkout line at Costco. Or I just thought about this. This week, I'm in the express line at Save Mart. This isn't the waiting of rolled eyes behind the guy who has like 45, not 15 items in his cart. Why am I waiting here? It's not that kind of waiting. This is the expectant, I might pee in my pants, waiting of a child on Christmas Eve. Right? This is the hope-filled, wide-eyed wonder of a child up on tiptoes waiting for that fire truck to come around the corner, right? It's the waiting of Yosemite Valley and redwood forests 
the waiting of big surge crashing waves, the waiting of seals and dolphins and baby calves and puppies at the park. It's waiting with bated breath. And Paul's not exaggerating here. This is what he's saying. And, and what is it waiting for? He says creation is waiting for, do you see it? A revealing uh, of what? A revealing of the sons of God. Like what? The adopted sons and daughters of God in Jesus, all creation is waiting for us to be revealed. See, a time is coming Paul says, when God's adopted sons and daughters will be revealed to the watching created universe, he's just telling us that creation is this theater of God's redemptive drama and creation is watching, looking at the stage, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed, both for their identity to be disclosed, but also for their real glory to be seen. You see, what we will be as God's children is hidden right now. See, in part, the true children of God are hidden from the world's view. And Paul says, one day they will be revealed. Right now, Paul says, those who God has made righteous through faith in Jesus, children of God, right now, we suffer in a world that's enslaved to sin and death. We remain weak and imperfect. The world looks at us and laughs sometimes. We suffer along with everyone else. We fall and we fail every day. Even though the spirit is in us, he continues to reside in us. We're just people. We're teachers and students and bus drivers. We're baristas. We're software engineers and we're social workers and salespeople. We're mothers and fathers and children. We're first responders and nurses. We're young and middle-aged and elderly. We're black and white and brown. Our, Our status as God's children right now is ultimately hidden from the world. But what Paul is saying is there's coming a day when God's going to draw back the curtain. And God's children will be revealed in all their glory. And what Paul is really saying right here is this, creation can't wait. Creation can't wait. Creation is like a spectator to Jesus' redemption of his people. Notice Paul is saying creation's not center stage. God's people are center stage with their redeemer in their midst. And he says this revealing is gonna happen when Jesus returns. In fact, if you look ahead to verse 23, this uh, revelation is going to include the redemption of our bodies. If you look back uh, to verse 17, it says we're gonna be glorified with him. All these realities are happening at the same time. And this is just reminding us of God's ultimate purpose for us in Christ that that one day we're not going to be just floating around on the clouds, you know, like ghosts. We're going to be raised bodily and made new and beautiful and healthy and strong and perfectly happy with our God forever. Our, our future glory means that we will all one day receive new imperishable, resurrected, perfect bodies just like Jesus did when Jesus rose from the grave on Easter Sunday morning. No more wheelchairs, no more painkillers, no more glasses or contacts, no more vaccines or chemotherapy, no more deformity, disability, or death, no more tears, trial, or trouble, no more more sinful desires or lies of the enemy, only newness, glory, 
redeemed bodies capable of seeing and hearing and touching and tasting and smelling with new infinite capacities to enjoy God forever. We are going to be restored to what God intended in the beginning when he created Adam and Eve to our role of exercising God-like dominion now over the new heavens and the new earth. And that day we will be able to skip and run and dance and laugh and swim and serve and feast forever without our backs and knees hurting and without having indigestion afterwards. (laughs) C.S. Lewis in his famous essay, The Weight of Glory, said that if we could see now what each one of us would be, we would be tempted to fall down in worship because so great would be the glory. And Paul's point here is simply this. All creation is eagerly awaiting the day when the children of God will appear in all their glory. I mean, just think about that. When you go on your next hike, think about that. When you're driving down Highway 1 at Big Sur and the mountains are on one side and the crashing waves are on the other side, think about that. With every dawning of a new day, creation stands on tiptoes and asks, is this the day? Now, if you think that way, if you believe this is true, can you see how it changes the way you suffer today. This is what Paul is trying to get us to see. Our theology of the future glory infuses our present suffering with hope. Now, Paul maybe knows that he's not explaining everything. Maybe he's getting a little bit ahead of himself and because he knows there might be more questions. And so maybe some are asking, well, why is it like this? What happened to make things the way they are today? Why does the world suck? You ever ask that question? All God's people said. Amen. Yeah, we wonder why. So like why suffering and then glory? And that's where Paul goes in verse 20. He says, well, let me back up for a second to explain this. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. In other words, it wasn't creation's idea. He, this isn't natural. But because of him who subjected it, so that's God. God did the subjecting and he had a purpose in hope. So two things that I want to mention. First, we learn that it was God who brought creation under the curse of futility, what the next verse calls a bondage to corruption. In other words, creation is now today trapped in bondage to this cycle of disease and decay and death. And that's because God has judged creation and God has judged creation because of humanity's sin. That all started with Adam's disobedience in Genesis 3, that When man sinned, and by the way, don't get mad at Adam, okay? Because you had your chance and you blew it too. (laughs) But because of our sin, creation has been cursed. That's what Genesis 3, 17 says, that cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth to you. Like when you're stuck 
in a traffic jam on the Altamont, just think thorns and thistles. Adam, you were so stupid. <laughs> like everything bad that happens is because of this. You are dust and to death, dust you shall return. Death and, and also right in that passage, Paul is referring back to how women would experience pain in childbirth. And we see that in Genesis 3. You see, as a result of this curse, this judgment of God, creation is not what it was intended to be. None of us have ever lived in the realities of the original creation. We've only always ever more lived under God's just judgment. And it is not because God is evil, but because we are evil It's not because God is unjust, but but we are unjust. He is just, and he will not tolerate evil. And so creation is subjected to futility because of human sin. Our sin plunged the whole created order into ruin. And, And what that does is tell us that frustration and pain and death and disease and disability and natural disaster is not natural. Those things are all unnatural. They are not what God intended his world, his creation to be. Pandemics and tornadoes and floods and tsunamis and earthquakes, death itself. Do you understand these are all dramatic statements from the judge of the universe telling us about the reality of sin This is why all living things, even the universe, winds down with this natural bent toward decay. This is why skin wrinkles and bones break and hearts fail and cancer cells multiply. We're in bondage to corruption. This is why things wear out and break and why rust corrodes and moths eat. It's why violence and death reign. Creation is not what it should be. It is not natural, but it is judicial means the judgment of the human race from God is imprinted on the entire universe. It really is how God declares visibly and dramatically this is how horrific sin is. This is what sin deserves. It's it's like a living parable of the destructive consequences of sin. And yes, creation is beautiful because it was created by a beautiful creator And there are still marks of his beauty there, but that beauty is subject to futility. Why? Because we are subject to futility. You know, one, I think, practical thing I should mention, if you are suffering, going through trials, you you should not read too much into your suffering. It's so easy. I mean, we go there all the time to think that this is some kind of punishment. Like, what did I do? How have I sinned? I must have done something wrong. And I just want to encourage you, you should not assume that. That should not be the first place you you go. And yes, we need to search our hearts. Yes, we need to pray and we need to let suffering move us to God. But do not let that be added to your misery. Creation itself, the whole thing is under a divine curse and no one escapes this. Not even God's precious and dearly loved children. We too must suffer with Jesus through it. Because we follow a savior who suffered and conquered that futility. Look at the very end of verse 20 into verse 21. Not only has God brought creation under a curse, but we see that God's curse has a purpose. We see that purpose in those two words in hope. That's the end of verse 20. 
This means futility is not the end. Corruption does not have the last word. Hope does. Hope. You see, futility has a hopeful purpose in God's purposes. And what is that? Well, verse 21 says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Just let that sink in. I mean, that may be the most glorious half sentence in the universe. God's plan all along was that creation would be set free from futility and bondage to corruption. Paul says that creation itself will one day experience this freedom of the glory of the children of God. And what this means is that just as the children of God in Jesus will one day be glorified and set free, so also the entire created order will one day be glorified and set free. That God's plan from the start was to let creation share in this freedom of God's children. See, Adam... In his sin, plunged creation into ruin, but the second Adam, and his name is Jesus, set creation free, brings creation out of ruin. And when God brings that all to fruition, creation will experience it too. And it's no wonder, therefore, that creation waits with bated breath. Is this the day that the whole earth will be glorified and made perfect? Is this the day that God comes for his children? See, on that day, creation will be set free from sin's curse, will become more beautiful than we can imagine. The universe won't be destroyed, but liberated, transformed, and suffused with the glory of God. But again, notice who's on center stage. Not creation, but God's children. The primary focus Paul has is about us, we who are um, God's children, God's people, that we will one day be set free and creation will follow us in that. Jesus himself gave us a hint about that in Matthew 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We sometimes kind of read that like a metaphor. But Jesus wasn't using a metaphor. Jesus was serious. He meant what he said. And one day God's people will be glorified. Uh, there are so many places that we, we could talk about this. I'm looking at my notes. I'm going to go past a number of verses. I'm, again, we have this perennial every Sunday problem. Y'all don't listen fast enough. Uh, but just say it again. God's children will be revealed and glorified. Creation will be set free and glorified. The curse will be lifted. And so therefore the creation which knows its creator waits with bated breath, waits with eager longing. And this means that we too can have hope in our suffering. Is anybody feeling a little more encouraged now maybe than a few minutes ago? I just hope so. This is gonna be such a glorious thing. Think about it, it will be God with God's people and God's place forever with Jesus at the center of it all. It's perfect, it's renewed, all of God's creation. It's gonna be physical, not just spiritual. No death or decay, no fears or tears, no disappointments or depression, just an ocean of love and delight and righteousness and hope and truth and goodness and holy happiness forever because God, the God of glory, is at the center of it all. And think about this. Since God is infinitely glorious, nothing less than eternity 
can be sufficient for him to display his glory and for us to enjoy that glory. If you need it distilled down to a few words, heaven will never be boring. And this means, I think, that our joy will progressively increase throughout eternity with every new measure of new understanding of all of God's infinite perfections. And you see, if this is true, and it is, then that means that today our broken world with all its tragic pain is going to seem so small, it will not be worth comparing to that reality. And you see, God gets more glory this way. His, his judgment is glorified in his judgment. His mercy is glorified in saving sinful people. His amazing wisdom is displayed in unfolding this drama of redemption that, that just opens up and unfolds over thousands and thousands of years. And all this is just telling us today, fix your eyes on that future glory. Make it a practice, a habit, a discipline to fix your eyes on the eternal weight of the glory that is to come. It will protect you from sin. It will comfort you in affliction. It will free your life from getting too anchored and entangled to this present day. It is good. It is glorious. So what do we do until then? And that's where we'll close the third way we rethink. Paul is just telling us we need to groan and wait in hope. So we rethink how we see our present waiting. Look at verse 22, for he says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And he's saying again, in light of this, creation is groaning as it waits for its final glorious liberation. He's saying that, that creation groans with famines and earthquakes and melting ice caps and tsunamis and floods and storms. It groans in need of a redeemer, just waiting creationists to be set free. But these groans, notice, are not the groans of death. And I think that's a lot of times how we process our suffering, right? We, we think we're groaning, but it's like we're groaning because we think we're in the hospice room. But we're not. We're groaning because we're in the OB ward, right? These are groans of labor. Our groaning tells us not that death is coming, but that new life is on the way. And if you think about it, childbirth is a perfect analogy. Now, I do not speak from experience and I do not presume to know. I just want to be clear on this. Anything that any of the wonderful lovely ladies in the room have gone through in childbirth. I am not saying that. I have been told that labor is extremely painful. <laughs> but I do know as a human being that new life is on the other side of that labor, right? And so Paul is saying, like a mother anticipating the arrival of a new child, creation anticipates the arrival of the children of God and her release through her groans. Paul continues in verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so not only does creation groan, but we groan as Jesus' people, we groan. He says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the Spirit sort of in us as, sort of as a down payment and a guarantee for the fullness that one day will come. 
And so today we groan because we haven't yet experienced the fullness of all that God has for us. If you have adopted a child, maybe you could think of this as like the ultimate adoption day. See, we live, the New Testament tells us, in the already but the not yet. We're secure in Jesus, but we don't have everything he's promised. It's it's still coming. He's still working out his purposes. And until that day, as we trust him, along with creation, we groan as we await the fulfillment of God's purposes, as we await for that great cosmic adoption day. We groan that our bodies break down. Anybody want to groan right now? As we age and become weak and get sick, We groan that we get tired and get discouraged. We groan that our lingering sinful nature keeps us from following God like we wish we could. We just groan because it's like I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. Yeah, I became a pastor when I was 25 and I was optimistic, hopeful, but it was very naive. Now, I'm older, not that much older, (laughs) but a little older. And now after these years, I've had a a longer history, you know, with me, first of all. I've had a longer history with people like you, and I'm not as hopeful as I used to be. I'm more realistic. My hope is in a different place. You know, I thought I would be more mature by now. I definitely thought you would be more mature by now. <laughs> but you know, that's part of the groaning, right? The world has fallen, the world is broken. We don't experience all that God has for us yet. But it's coming. That's why Paul says these groans aren't groans of despair. They're not groans of despair. They're groans of orphans whose adoption has been secure, but who are longing and waiting for that great adoption day. They're groans of children who are heirs, and we're just waiting for the inheritance that's coming for glory. And Paul concludes in verses 24 and 25 by saying, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, hope here, let's be clear. I've told you this before. Let me say it again. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is is confident expectation. This will happen. And so therefore we have hope. And this confident expectation, Paul says, empowers us to wait with patience. It's the confident expectations that the first fruits are always gonna be followed by a harvest That bondage is always going to be followed by freedom. That decay one day will be replaced by incorruptible life. And that means, dear children of God, wherever you are, when you get that phone call you don't want, when you're lying in that hospital bed, when that wave of depression washes over you once more, when the person you trusted more than anyone in the world walks away in all of those moments and so many others like them, it means that we, God's people, God's children, God's heirs are marked by confident hope because we know that our suffering does not have the final word. It just marks the pathway to our ultimate home.
It is a confident expectation that future glory will be so stunning that our present painful suffering will one day seem inconsequential. And that confident hope will empower us today in our pain to live lives of love and generosity and holiness and to spread the gospel for the glory of God and the good of many so that as many people as possible can participate in the future glory that we are hoping in. Amen. Let me close with an illustration. Samuel Rutherford was a 17th century Puritan, one of the most famous theologians to come out of Scotland. And along with all the other uh, Puritans, he lived in tumultuous times. He was barred by preaching, from preaching by the state church. He was actually imprisoned in Aberdeen, Scotland. And over his life, he lost two wives to death, and he lost all seven of his children. Later in his life, in his closing years, he wrote a letter to a woman who had recently lost her husband. This is what he said. When you are come to the other side of the water, he's talking about the other side of death, and have set down your foot on the shore of glorious eternity, and you look back again to the waters and to your wearisome journey, and then see in that clear glass of endless glory nearer to the bottom of God's wisdom, you shall then be forced to say, if God had done otherwise with me than he has done, I would never have come to the enjoying of this crown of glory." And then he continued, therefore, it is your part now to believe and suffer and hope and wait on. God knows what he's doing with our lives. He's a good father and we are his children. And he knows exactly what we need to make it home to glory for our feet to be set on the other side of that river. And when they are, friends, we will look back and we will be able to say as we see in his infinite wisdom why things happen the way they have in our lives. We will. And if you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior yet, then I just want to encourage you and say to you, we want you to get with us to the other side of that river. So surrender to Jesus today by faith. Allow him to forgive your sins. Turn from a life, live for yourself. Embrace him by faith and he will make you his child. And that future glory we've been talking about will be yours as well. We want you to be there with us, with Jesus in glory forever. This is real reality. See, as Christ followers, our part now is to believe and sometimes to suffer, but to do so with this confident, hope-filled expectation as we eagerly await that great day. God's future is not built on false promises. Either trust him or don't trust him. We are his children. We have an inheritance. We are free in Jesus. Glory is coming. And so we can trust with Paul that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is God's word. Do you receive it today? All God's people say, amen. Amen. Let's pray together.
Lord, we come before you as finite and frail, weak people. Lord, it's so hard for us to comprehend the nature of this glory, which, of course, is why you told us it's incomparable. Lord, what no eye has seen, what the heart of man has never imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. And so, Lord, we believe, we believe, help our unbelief. Help us to anchor our hearts in the reality of the eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Lord, we need you to do that good work in us by your spirit. Lord, would you allow us to be resilient people who amidst our suffering and our tears and heartache, amidst our groaning, Lord, that we groan not with groans of death, but groans for that adoption day. So help us to be the people today who take you at your word and live countercultural, otherworldly lives of joy and hope and love. And we pray, Lord, for any who listen in on this, that they will also take you at your word and join us in that great reality, glory. We trust you. We love you. We need you. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus the Christ and all God's people said.